Sponsor CBT Nuggets is IT training for IT professionals and anyone looking to build IT skills. You can sign up for a free CBT Nuggets trial. There is no credit card required to sign up, and you will have access to the entire training library. Visit cbtnuggets.com slash heavy networking. That's cbtnuggets.com slash heavy networking. Sponsor IP Fabrics automated network assurance platform helps you make sure your network is doing the things you mean for it to be doing. Download the future of DC network automation at ipfabric.io slash packet pushers to find out more. ipfabric.io slash packet pushers. Our heavy networking topic of the day is home IoT at scale. We're going to get into the weeds with two network engineers who've gone way beyond lighting and a few smart plugs in their home automation setup. Chris Young joins us along with Christian Schultz. I will ask you two gentlemen to introduce yourselves. Christian, starting with you, who are you and what do you do? Yeah, uh, thanks very much for having me. My name is uh, Christian Scholz. I'm a senior network engineer working for Axios. Um, in my day job, I'm doing yeah mostly Juniper networking stuff. And at night, I'm a mad IoT scientist uh, who can't be helped anymore. Okay. And Chris Young, same question. I am a uh, solutions architect working for Zscaler. This is not that. All plausible deniability. All opinions are my own. Legal, legal. Um, and yeah, it's good to be back. Uh, I have been doing stuff for years, decades at this point, and uh, I have also kind of caught that IoT bug and um, am am finding, you know, as we were talking before, I'm finding myself reliving periods of my youth in this new world that we're living in. <laughs> yes, yeah, so we'll I've get heard, to that. As I've heard about both of your IoT setups, I feel like yeah, I, I have done the lighting and the smart plugs and you know, miscellaneous other stuff. I have a there's a thermostat with an app that you can you know program with policies and so on. And I I dabble very casually with HomeKit. I would say I am even though I'm a nerd, more or less the typical consumer of IoT stuff. You guys are not that. So Christian, let's let's start with you. You've got a fairly insane IoT sensor network would you describe to us this beast you've built yeah well ba basically i started to build a house two years ago and uh, it was always my dream to have everything in this house smart so every power plug every every light every temperature everything should be yeah visible and smart and interact with each other um so currently i have 361 sensors running roughly um Roughly 180 concurrent sensors, because some of them are yeah battery powered, so they are not always that chatty. Um, yeah, and then I I started and, and I never quit. So this home is still growing, and uh, yeah, there's nothing that I can't measure. But I'm still finding so many other things to try. Um, it's just fun. Now you said something really interesting there. It's not just that you're using all of these smart devices so that you can control them, but you said that they are interacting with each other. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I've built a network based on the I.O. broker. So that's basically like the brain for my home automation system. And uh, depending on what the sensors measure or sense, uh, et cetera, um, the I.O. broker can react to that. There are a ton of scripts that I've implemented. And yeah, depending on what happens in my house, certain other parts of the house react to that and yeah, either send me a message or switch something on and off. And yeah. Us, us network folk would call that an orchestrator. Exactly. Not just automation, full um, event-driven orchestration. So what is the platform or the software that you're using to do all of that control and, uh, and IoT orchestration, Christian? 
Yeah, well, I, I started with the Raspberry Pi, um, with the Raspberry Pi OS, and on top of that was the IO broker software. And nowadays, I've switched to a microserver because it has a lot of lot more power and a lot more storage. So uh, yeah, I'm not just using all these sensors, but I'm storing a lot of data, the raw data. I don't know what I'm doing in the future with it. So I'm storing as much raw data as possible. And uh, yeah, that needs a lot of space. I started with the Raspberry Pi. I'm just curious, how many flashcards did you go through writing data? I, I, I think I had six or seven before I started to move to the microserver. Yeah, that, that's, I, I had the exact same, I was using Home Assistant, but the exact same experience in that yeah. your entire system just dies because of the amount of reads on yeah. the flashcard multiple times. Throughput bottlenecked by, uh, by IOPS uh, going to the flashcard, you're saying? Uh, no, not uh, the amount of writes that goes over top of the flashcard eventually because of the consistent oh, number of writes. You're killing kills, the card. Killing the card itself. Yeah. And the card just goes, no more. No more, sir. I'm done. Not IOPS. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Christian, what format are you storing all this data in? You said you're storing a bunch of data and you don't, don't not even sure what you're going to do with it. So what, what's it sitting out there in? Um, yeah, but basically with the IO broker, I have a plugin for an influx database. And yeah, I'm basically logging everything. I'm mostly using MQTT in my network. So I log all of the events that MQTT produces and yeah, reads and writes so that I can, yeah, for example, draw temperature graphs or humidity graphs. And yeah, who knows what, what comes up in the future. So it's always important to save the raw data because then you can use it for a different thing. It's a scenario that I'm not even thinking of right now. So those time series data then is what you're sa uh, saving yeah. it as. You said InfluxDB, yeah. so yeah. yeah. So graphs, okay. So did you, you got something built with Grafana or something to visualize all the graphs? Exactly, exactly. There's a plugin for Grafana and this is where the, where the fun part begins when you can basically see how your home reacts or depending on how much you open your windows, how your heating system reacts and uh, yeah, how the, even how the airflow moves through your house because you have so many sensors in place that you can measure, okay, from the moment I open the window, how much time does it take to get to the end of the room? That's basically because I have this insane amount of sensors. But it's so much fun to, to, to look at the data and just, yeah, play with it. But you have a networking problem though too then, where you've got all these sensors that are, well, are they wireless wired a mix? Talk, talk to us about that. It, it's a mix. Most of them are wireless, um, but but it also depends. I have some of them which are wired, depending on the type of vendor that I use, um, but most of the devices run wireless. And by wireless, do we mean Wi-Fi or do we mean Bluetooth or something else? Oh, Wi-Fi, Wi-Fi. Oh, I actually didn't expect you to say that. I expected you to say, oh, some of them are Wi-Fi, some of them are Bluetooth, and some of them are, I don't know, Zigbee or you know, some other mix. Plugged in or Wi-Fi on battery? Wi-Fi plugged in, most okay. of them. That, that makes more sense to me now. Yeah. Uh, the the battery ones they they are usually they are also Wi-Fi but like I said they don't chatter that much and they come up maybe like every thirty minutes or an hour depending on the type of sensor and the type of battery, but most of the devices I have especially for the power plugs they are all wired so they can yeah basically send me the data every thirty seconds and so they, so they're not okay there's a lot of sensors but they're not putting tons and tons of data into the air where you would need to have like you know, a ton of access points to, to handle the load. You, you, how many access points do you have to deal with all the sensors? Uh, I have three. Yeah, okay. And those three access points are able to handle all these, uh, yeah, like I said, 180 concurrent things, um, but 
since the the protocol itself basically just sends okay i'm on i'm off or this is the temperature so a lot of small chunks of data so uh yeah my my old ubiquiti system was reaching a limit um, and then i switched to the juniper access points and so far they could handle everything so so these are these are what missed access points from juniper yeah, yeah exactly okay yeah. Uh, most of the iot Wi-Fi stuff that I've seen, it can be a pretty old revision of Wi-Fi. It can be, you know, G or N or or B even. It can go way back. Is that what you're everywhere? Yeah. Is 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 that what your your sensors are? Older stuff, or is any of it newer? You know, most of the stuff is still using G. Um, I have some of the newer ones that are starting to see AC, but most of them use still the the G one. Because mostly because the vendors tell you about the power constraints that comes with AC, and uh, yeah, basically I have a I have a load of uh, 250 watts now. Um, and if you would add the newer sensors, that would be even higher. So that's always something to look out for, especially if you have the battery powered ones um, that can drain your battery quite quickly. It's a totally different way of looking at the world than what we're used to, especially if you're if you're doing data center engineering to go to this scale is like it just you have to completely shift your mind in that you're not you're no longer optimizing for speed because you really don't care. Your time scale is half an hour. You're not dealing in in milliseconds or microseconds. You're no longer optimizing for for bandwidth because it's it's like measured literally in 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 bytes like possibly possibly bits like it's your it's a json text document that's uploaded over every 30 minutes so the the entire way and then plus on a lot of these devices where you're trying to put them you're dealing with how do you get to a $5 device which means you can't even think about putting an ac in it so and usually where they put them is someplace which is somewhere far away cuz you're not optimizing for these other things it means the 2.4 gigahertz is actually a better wifi protocol to use because it can go further. So all the things that you yeah. think that you know, like this is the Alice in Wonderland of networking. RIP well, became a thing again. Exactly. <laughs> well, you, you, we're optimizing for cost. The sensor needs to be cheap and it needs to be low power. Um, it needs to have good, right, penetration so you can get the signal through. So all of a sudden, as you were saying, Chris, there's a bunch of stuff we don't care about anymore that if we were designing enterprise Wi-Fi, we would, we would care about. So a G radio? is fine and even the right solution for what we're trying to get done here we're actually and engineering we're <laughs> yeah Ooh. <laughs> you mean we're actually engineering as in matching the right so the right technology to the right problem um yes not just opening up uh and, and typing commands we're actually thinking about the project requirements <laughs> a little <laughs> little bitter there in my old age so now d does does bluetooth factor into anything christian in your network um, well, the newer sensors, they, they start with Bluetooth if you're using the vendor's app, but uh, in my network, I'm not using Bluetooth at all. And, and now, I have Philips Hue light bulbs in my house, and that is, I believe, Zigbee uh, underneath. Do you have any of the oddball, well, oddball, oddball to network engineer uh, protocols like, like Zigbee? Uh, well, I have some of the um, light sensors running on Zigbee. So I have this yeah, Zigbee control stick connected to my I.O. broker. Um, there's a diff different plugin for it. Um, and that is the cool thing about these orchestrators because they don't care about the protocol, if it's the Wi-Fi or if you're using Zigbee or if you're using uh, Matter or whatever comes up, um, you can simply yeah use it on your orchestrator and have the devices interact with each other. No matter what the what vendor you have, and for the for the light sensors, the best one I found used Zigbee, so I also got into Zigbee. 
You keep saying IO broker. Now, okay, so for those of us that are not familiar, this is a software package, yeah? Yeah, exactly. It's the, the orchestrator software that I use. There are other ones like Home Assistant. Um, there are a ton of them out there, all with pros and cons. Um, but I found the IO broker for my setup and for my scenario, the easiest one to use. So I just stick with it. So if I'm using, uh, like I'm in the Apple ecosystem and so I use HomeKit um, for, for better or worse. Chris, I, I guess you'd be familiar with HomeKit too. That's been a, your YouTube channel has certainly featured home, a lot of HomeKit content. Would IO Broker replace HomeKit, do the same kind of things where that would be the app I would interact with, where I've written uh, my automation scripts to make things happen? Or is it kind of something, fulfilling a different role, let's say? That is such a tough question. Like I'll, I'll dig in on that one because you're getting into religious debates. Um, there are some people that would be absolutely yes. There would other people that would go like, I run things concurrently. I know people who actually run Home Assistant as their core. They use the HomeKit uh, integrations from a Home Assistant perspective to pair your HomeKit devices with Home Assistant and then use the HomeKit bridge component with, within Home Assistant to then expose those same devices all the way into HomeKit and use HomeKit as the presentation layer. So there is all these different, like, what do you want to do with it? You know, one of the drawbacks with HomeKit is it doesn't do any historical information. It doesn't keep that over time. So if you want to be able to get that, then you can use this uh, Home Assistant as kind of a, a interim layer, as a translation layer between whatever it is that you're doing and HomeKit, even if it's a HomeKit native device. It feels like if I fiddled enough, I could get to the one app to rule them all scenario, which I, I don't have right now. If uh, me as the typical home consumer, I've got a Philips Hue app that is really what I need to talk to, to Hue bulbs. I've got some Lutron Cassetta uh, switches that I use for some other lighting that doesn't interact with Hue and it doesn't interact with a lot of other things. It does interact with HomeKit. And so I can get uh, the home app to to do some integrated things there. But it's, again, it's it's not consistent. You talk about historical data. Okay, I've got this thermostat that runs and keeps a heater running. And that will give me historical data if I've in its app, but not, yep. you know, not in other places. So yeah, absolutely. And you're kind of in that there is the, com the consumer tier in which HomeKit is right now, as far as I can tell, one of the best from the consumer tier. Yes, there's, there's, there's smart things out there, but their cloud goes down every six months is what it felt like to me. I tried it, I got off because it wasn't reliable. Um, Amazon and Google, so the Amazon uh, Echo integration, we, we shall not, she who shall not be named, um, <laughs> we'll, we'll keep all those people happy. Um, they, they, you just don't have the automation capabilities, the sensor, like you can't do a bunch of triggered actions, right? That's where HomeKit really wins is you can, um, any sensor state within the database you can make a change on, but you don't get historical information. And if it's not supported by HomeKit, you don't use it in that walled garden, right? But it's easy to do. Anybody can set it up. As soon as you go into something like Home Assistant or IO Broker, you now need more technical skills for the most part. Uh, Home Assistant has come a long way in the last year and a half, but there is still a certain like it's only, I think, within the last six months that you could buy a, a Raspberry Pi, a box that actually had Home Assistant pre-installed. If you wanted Home Assistant before that, you needed to go out and buy a Raspberry Pi, usually put it together and glue on the heatsink by yourself, and then go out and get Etcher and flash the Home Assistant uh, image to your SD card and 
you know, get used to that procedure because you'll probably be doing it again in six months based on on the writing. Like, <laughs> it's a different scale of who's going to be doing this right now. It's we're we're very much um, bifurcated on who's going to be using the open source I/O brokers and Home Assistant versus who's going to be using uh, the the com- more consumer grade platform. We pause today's podcast discussion for training talk with heavy networking sponsor CBT Nuggets. I care about IT training because it's been a big part of my IT career since I started going all the way back to 95. I began my IT infrastructure journey learning Novell stuff. And over the years, training's never stopped for me because sometimes I'm going for cert. Sometimes I just need to get a better handle on something new, but I am always learning something to deliver the best networks that I can. As you research your own training needs, consider CBT Nuggets. CBT Nugget specializes in training for networking, cloud, and security. They cover other material too, but they have an especially huge library of training material for Cisco, AWS, Juniper, Linux, Microsoft, and VMware. Thousands of videos, thousands of hours of content, which which is not meant to scare you. It's okay. You don't have to watch them all at once. Just know that what you need is there when you need it. For example, all of you that are getting into network automation now, CBT Nuggets offers Cisco DevNet Associate and DevNet Professional Training. I have been reviewing the DevNet Blueprint material from Cisco. I can tell you, you are going to want training to get through these programs and make the most of them. DevNet material, it's not like learning a new routing protocol. It's learning how to manage infrastructure as code. And if you're a traditional ops person, that's really what I am. It's a whole new way of thinking. There's so much more than DevNet training there at CBT Nuggets. I've spent some time with the interface, digging through the catalog. It's easy to navigate. I sampled several videos. The audio and the video quality are excellent, and the instructors are easy to understand. They are personal. They are engaging. They are not formal and boring, and some some of them even wear a cowboy hat. Besides the training itself, there is a great support system to help you get a handle on the material with virtual labs and accountability coaching. Now is a great time to sign up for CBT Nuggets. Visit cbtnuggets.com slash heavy networking to take advantage of their seven days free trial offer. Try it for a week. See if you like it. Commit if you do. Cancel if you don't. Seems fair. cbtnuggets.com slash heavy networking for seven days free. That's cbtnuggets.com slash heavy networking. And now back to the podcast I so rudely interrupted. So Christian, uh, you're using IO Broker. Okay. Now you mentioned uh, the it's your your orchestration layer. Can you give us more examples of the things that you're the triggers that you're reacting to where this happens and then this other thing gets uh, this thing gets triggered and something else happens on your home network? Uh, sure. Um, basically, my idea was to be as lazy as possible. So um, let's say I want to watch TV at the evening. So I start by switching on the TV, switching off the light, switching on the LED strip on the sofa putting down the blinds because stuff reflects on the TV. And all of that is now I'm simply switching on my TV and the system knows that I'm switching on my TV based on the sensors that I have. And then they switch off the light, shut the blinds, switch on the MB light and stuff like that. So basically I'm trying to make my life more lazy. That, that's So the trigger is turning on the TV. That's the trigger that it makes the other things happen. It's not you bring up an app on your phone and hit a button that turns on the TV and does all these other things. You turn on the TV and then there's a reaction. Exactly. Uh, Basically, I could also do this via the app. Um, There's uh, a thing called VIS for the virtualization, for the visualization stuff, um, where I can control all of that. But my idea was to react on different triggers that I do. I don't want to pull out my phone 
all the time and say, okay, this is what I want to do. So basically I created scenes for me that fit and, this. And it's triggered based on something that's sensed. And I'm, I'm very much the same way. Um, it, it is, I don't want to have to tap a button and pull out my phone because then I've had to do yeah. something. I don't want to yeah. ask somebody else to do something. I've got kids for that. I don't want to flip a light switch like a caveman. Like <laughs> I, I don't want to do any of those things. Exactly. I, I want the house to be smart enough that it senses what's going on. And based on that, um, you know, that's, that's a perfect example. And I've, I've heard people who have um, in now this gets a little bit far for the record, but I know people who've done this, they have designated sitting areas and the sitting area actually has a pressure sensor that they've put into the cushion underneath so that when, when the TV turns on, you can take into account the fact that Christian is not in his chair. It's actually his wife, his kid, his um, whatever. And based on it's not Christian's chair, that sensor hasn't been triggered. We're going to actually set it up for the, the wife's yoga, the whatever, right? Or I'm in not my chair. I'm not in my chair and I'm in my gym. So then I'm going to change my gym setting, brighter lights, change the hue of the light, all those kinds of things. So there's taking all that data into that raw data is the context, like using that as context for your decision making. Yeah. yeah. And that can be quite, quite uh, tricky, especially if you have other people live in the house. Um, because usually when you start this, you... You, you think that you have the perfect system and everything that you designed is, is working the way it should. So, um, like I said, I installed these Juniper access points. They have a Bluetooth array, so they can exactly know, like one or two centimeters, where my smartwatch, for example, is. So I said, okay, every time I enter a room, the light should turn on. And every time I leave the room, the light behind me should turn off. That worked really, really well. Then I said, okay, if I'm leaving the room, the TV should also get off, basically make the whole room dark. That worked really, really well until I was watching a movie with my wife. A commercial came up and I said, okay, I need to step out for a bit. And when I left the room, uh, she was basically sitting in the dark because everything turned off. And yeah, um, it was the, the, yeah, as you can imagine, I had to deactivate this feature and later had to do some, some more steps to check if other people are still in the room. So, yeah. Once upon a time, that's that was um, launch a bug, and the response from support would be working as designed. Yep. <laughs> yes. Well, it reminds me of of any sort of coding that you do. You write the initial script or code to solve a problem, and then there's the problem with the scenario you didn't think of that now you've got in version zero point two. You've got to handle that exception, if you will, to the primary problem that you're trying to solve. Uh, uh, well, or you can you can choose to address the corner cases, or you can choose to ignore them. Yeah, those are choices to be made. <laughs> I'm, I I have I make no judgment. <laughs> well, the, I mean, the the problem of living with a, a you know a spouse, family, uh, pets, uh, I uh, are going to introduce all sorts of variables that I think for a, a home that's a common living space for all those people, you're gonna you're gonna have to deal with them by and large. Maybe you don't like your relationship, and it's a passive aggressive move, right? Like. <laughs> I don't touch. <laughs> Christian, would you walk me through the scenario where you press the button to turn on the TV and a bunch of stuff happens? If it was a network um, thing, I would say do like a packet walk. So, so it's kind of like that. There, you, you initiate this event by pressing the button. Walk us through how that event is detected and then what happens next. Well, basically, I have uh, two things that I could do. Um, either if I say, okay, once the 
the switch itself turns on, I'm reacting to that. But in the case of this TV, I'm switching the TV on and there's a certain spike in the power on the face. And uh, yeah, my system is detecting that, knows, okay, this power consumption is the TV okay, and reacts so, to that. So, so we got to pause right there. How are you detecting a power spike? You know, the, the, I'm assuming we're talking about like, like an amp draw from the TV power supply to, yeah. to, to boot up. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, the sensors that I have deployed that allow me to switch everything can also measure the consumption. Um, that is why I chose these sensors from Shelly, because now I can not only switch things on and off, but I know exactly how much power they draw. So this so is some kind of a, a, a smart plug that the TV's plugged into? Yeah, it's it's basically behind the wall. So it's it's installed by an electrician uh, because at least here in Germany, you can't do that by yourself. You need an electrician to do that for you mm -hmm. from the legal side because if the house burns down and you did it yourself, you're basically on your own. Um, but yeah, that's that's uh, now installed, and this allows me not only to switch it on and off, but also to to measure everything. So especially if I have like multiple devices behind that, um, then I don't just have on off but I need a way to sense what device did I switch on and off because maybe there is a like a power cord connected to it connecting three different devices like a PlayStation or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so I need to be able to separate and to know, is it the TV, is it the PlayStation or is it something else? So how, so how do this, you differentiate? Yeah. So this yeah, is where you think about what you're doing, right? So yeah. um, Christian's got a smart socket, which I would say the socket different than yeah. a plug. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And it's got energy yeah. monitoring yeah. capabilities. Not all of them do. Right. Yeah. So he's got that because he's got the TV plugged directly into it. You could look at like a TP Casa HS300, which is a six port power bar. And each of individual three of those uh, or of those six power slots all have the capability to do energy monitoring. Yeah. You could here in North America go to Sense, which is a, um, a block that actually gets and uses machine learning because no podcast would be complete without that term being used. Um, <laughs> But it will actually go right on your mains into the house and it connects into your breaker box and detects different power draws. Different devices have different power draws, different spin-ups. So there's a whole bunch of, of different potential ways of looking at this, right? Yeah. The easiest to me is, is honestly, and I've got these all over the place, is those power strips. Because yeah. now I can have six different um, devices on each two uh, North American two-prong two plug. So it's or a straightforward 12. way to detect because you just map what device you've plugged into which socket on that smart power strip, yeah. and that's how you differentiate as opposed to yeah. baselining power draw during the boot up cycle of the device and going, oh, it pulled you know this many amps and now or whatever the I'm assuming that's a good metric and uh, and going yeah. from there. I mean, it, yeah. it it also depends on the socket. At some some of the sockets, there's just one device connected. There you can simply map the on and off one, but on others where you have multiple devices attached, you need a way to differentiate and to find out what type of device you just switched on or off. And there's the, the 240 US power or 220 US power issue as well, that how are you going to get a power uh, plug for 220, right? So there's some things where you still got to deal with that. Um, when my water heater, my dryer, like any of those high, uh, high draw machines, devices come in, how are you going to deal with those situations? Which could be looking at power draw, which could be looking at putting a vibration sensor on it. Yeah. You have because, uh, okay. Yeah, well, I mean, w w when I started with, with this house building, I basically installed these sensors everywhere. And I soon discovered that for some devices, the power draw is a bit much like uh, your oven, for example. 
So the, the kitchen builders, they came in here, they tested the oven. Then I got a message, okay, we're done. You can go to the construction site and verify everything's working. I switched on the light in the oven. Everything was working fine until I threw in the first pizza and the oven turned off because that was a safety thing from the sensor that was still installed. So I realized, okay, in order to measure these huge power draws, I need a different solution. And that's basically a sensor now installed in the breaker box um, who is able to, to measure these big spikes. Installed in the breaker box, so not on the yeah. wall end of the socket, but way back in the box, yeah. okay. Yeah, way back in the box, so it can, basically I have the, the whole consumption of the whole house that I can monitor from, from this sensor on. So not only can I monitor with every of the smaller sensors, but I also have a complete view that gives me an additional view on the whole house power consumption. Now, so is this a special breaker box or is this something you've, a sensor you've added to the breaker box? That is a sensor that I've uh, added. So Shelly also has the sensor called the 3EM um, that I can basically clamp on the three phases that I have. And then I can yeah, basically monitor everything that comes in and gets out of the house. And it's smart and I, enough to know to differentiate the different devices? Yeah, you see that immediately, especially when you have these huge drawing things like your, your heater or your oven. You immediately see, okay, if this phase goes up in this amount, you immediately know it's device A, B, or C. Yeah, you get a feeling for that. At, the, at first, you just start to look at all the data, and then sooner or later, you find out, okay, if this happens, this is the fridge. If this happens, this is the oven. And then you can simply match on that in your scripts. I am intrigued. <laughs> I gotta say, so so I, I have not kept up with this like like you two have for sure, uh, and didn't even know sensors like this were were a thing. So okay, we we started walking through the event trigger. So you're you you turn the TV on that mm -hmm. triggers your smart socket to know because it's smart enough to know based on current loads. Oh, the TV mm -hmm. just started. So that event. Um, is known to the smart socket, which does it send send an event to you know software at this point, or is software polling the uh, the smart socket to know that an event well, happened? Well, I'm using MQTT in my network, so it's a, it's a publish and subscribe model. Um, basically, the sensor is uh, sending all the power consumption data to the I/O broker. So in case the power consumption changes. The I.O. broker gets a new event, like this is the old consumption was two watts, now it's 220 watts or whatever. So, so, um, so MQTT, based on that, I can, you've, you've got a, yes. a PubSub message bus, so the exactly. message is, is put on the bus, the I.O. broker is subscribed to that uh, message tr uh, train, pulls the message, and now knows this thing just happened. And, there, and, and that's, that's basically instantaneous? Yeah, basically instantaneous. And in the script, then I've matched, okay, if this 200 something watt device comes on at this point, then I know it's the TV. And now you send an MQTT message to all the other devices to switch on and off or dim at a certain level or whatever is yeah described in the script. Well, because you, you've got a script that's sitting there that knows when this event fires, run this script. Yes, exactly. Again, I am intrigued. <laughs> I'm going to have to start. I, I mean, at first you start with a simple script and with all this monitoring, and then you basically start to, okay, I want to know more. I want to collect even more data. I want to do more of the interesting stuff. And that is basically also why the raw data is so important, because 
maybe you can do something in the future that you're not even thinking about right now. And uh, especially if you're designing these scripts, you want to look at the historical data and see, okay, is this something that I can use or is this something that maybe I can't use because in version 0.0, you need to kill some features because of the yeah wife and stuff. <laughs> the podcast conversation will continue after I entice you to engage with sponsor IP Fabric. Why do you care about IP Fabric? Because you've been working through the long process of automating your network. You've been ramping up your coding skills and coming to grips with Ansible, and you even built an automation test lab. So... Maybe the train's not fast, but your network automation train is rolling. Well, how do you keep the momentum going? The answer has to do with data, structured data representing end-to-end -end network configuration and state. You've heard us talk about infrastructure as code, right? That. Okay, what does all this have to do with IP Fabric? IP Fabric recently sponsored an EMA research report discussing the future of DC network automation. And this revealed that more than half of organizations that use manual data gathering processes feel it undermines their automation efforts. That's where IP Fabric comes in. IP Fabric uses structured data to represent the network in a variety of ways and make those representations highly accessible to you. From the EMA report, when an engineer has everything they need to execute a change right in front of them, it leads to high quality work with a quick turnaround time. IP Fabric uses structured network data that it's gathered to represent the network in a beautiful GUI. IP Fabric will show you layer two and layer three maps, help you create custom sanity checks, simulate end-to-end -end paths, display multicast trees, break out ether channels, model security policies against traffic flows, and even makes these visualizations available via API so you can integrate them into the rest of your ops tooling stack. The EMA report, that's a good place to get started with IP Fabric, and you can download that report for free at ipfabric.io slash packetpushers. Oh, and the first 10 of you to download that report, you're going to be sent a little something from Team IP Fabric to help you as you brainstorm your ever-evolving network automation strategy. That is ipfabric.io slash packetpushers to download that free report. Now that you've been sufficiently enticed, we will go back to the podcast. So an, an, another question here then is how can I make any of my smart devices work with uh, MQTT and with IO broker? Uh, or am I going to be stuck in like the walled garden ecosystem of some of these vendors? Is that the royal eye or are, is this you specifically, Mr. Banks? Well, let, let's talk broadly. Uh, well, we can use, let, let's use me as an example and see where this goes. So uh, specifically, I have um, these Philips Hue lights. Let's say I've got some, I don't even remember who makes them, but some smart plugs that happen to work with Apple HomeKit. And I've got, as another device I haven't introduced to the conversation, but I've got a Logitech Harmony uh, hub that I can make do a bunch of things. As long as your device talks to the Harmony, you can use the Harmony as a hub that will trigger things. So right now... I've been using it to turn on and off my home entertainment system. I trigger an event from the Harmony remote control that turns on the Apple TV, turns on the television, and turns on the amplifier that brings up the surround sound system. It feels like I could make the Harmony go away with a system like you're talking about as long as I can make the amp talk to this system, as long as I can make the Apple TV talk to this system, as long as I can make the TV talk to maybe a smart plug or something um, to, to, to put all the triggers in place. I could actually engineer the Harmony out of the solution. 
Um, but I, I guess I would need to understand how how generically IO broker, MQTT, and the other components are to allow me to talk to these other subsystems within the house. Well, in the in best case, you have an adapter for that because the IO broker has a plugin system. Um, and basically there are, especially if a lot of folks start to use a certain vendor, there most likely is a plugin for it. So you simply install the plugin and it will automatically try to yeah sense everything in your network, try to find out about the devices in your network and then start pairing with them. And then you can react on that. That's the, the best case scenario. Um, but yeah, if, if there is no adapter for it, you need to have some sort of understanding of how to communicate with your devices. Is it plain MQTT? Is it a different protocol? Um, yeah. Uh, often you will have um, a vendor provided an app and then you'll have something like Charles Proxy so you can do SSL inspection on it decode the rest, um, figure out what they're doing from an auth perspective. And then um, uh, like in the home assistant world, you might be writing your own adapter. Mm -hmm. So this is the, like in the best case scenario, yes, it already exists and it's, and it's easy to use. Um, in the worst case scenario, you're now um, busy doing SSL inspection and you got your PCAPs out and all of those things that we've done for years is that's what you're doing, figuring out what the messages are figuring out what the data sources are, usually in a REST API, JSON yeah. formatted is the like the vast majority. I, I have not found an XML-based API yet. They're all JSON, REST and JSON is the data format. Um, and then you're putting together a Python script using something like requests or, or something else in the home assistant world, everything is Python-based. And you're pulling in that data, formatting it into the appropriate way that you wanna see it. And then you would then publish it out to MQTT if you wanted to, like it's, it's that world still. Right. So, so you end up building your own profile of, I'm, I'm doing a packet capture. I pressed the button on the controller and I saw this event fire and now I know, okay, I know what that event is. And then you, you, you deconstruct what the, uh, the rest call and the JSON payload was that comes back, but you, you got to engineer all that yourself, basically. Um, you're, yeah. You're reverse engineering their app. What is the auth model typically that we see with these uh, these IoT devices? What's this, what's this typical word you use? <laughs> it's so there is no typical. You're saying it's all over the place. Uh, it is. I, I have seen um, base one sixty four encoding with uh, a hash in there, uh, some salt to be able to make it somewhat unguessable and not just straight reverse engineering it. Um, yeah. In which case, I had a good relationship with the vendor and said, "This is why I'm doing this. Can you?" do me a solid and tell me what your auth looks like. Mm -hmm. And they did. Um, I have seen um, OAuth tokens. I've seen straight tokens in the message where you simply copy the token that was generated as part of their auth process into your code. And now it magically works. Um, a username and password sent in clear text. Um, I, all, all of the, across the board, all of it. IoT is like the wild, wild west, right? Um, and every vendor you ask, he has the perfect solution. All the others are wrong. <laughs> That's always the case. Like this particular vendor, if you ask him, he has the perfect solution. All the others, they don't know nothing about IoT at all. And that's the problem. <laughs> in, unless you get to the vendors who actually do know what they're doing. Yes. In which case, they're like, oh, that's an interesting use case. Um, you know, I, I can't get too much into it because I, I said I wouldn't. But there's a certain vendor who uh, um, they had to rewrite their, their MDNS stack because of me. Hmm because they hit a scale problem and couldn't hit the amount of MDNS messages getting sent to their particular bridge. And it 
fell over and died. Just as in too many MDMS messages hitting it, it couldn't handle yeah. the... Uh, couldn't... So in, in like a HomeKit system and a lot of the normal IoT non-MQTT stuff, they'll use MDNS uh, as as the kind of their pub sub. It makes me feel dirty to say it that way, but you can think <laughs> of it that way. Um, and but, but that's what they're doing. They yell it out to the air and then people, if you, if you are um, listening for that device, that's where the information, the state change will come in. So you're not really, you're not actively pulling anything and you're just waiting for a state to change. So if you have a contact sensor uh, that's Bluetooth based and it's running on a, a uh, 2032, like a coin battery, you don't want to be pulling it all the time for events when there's nothing going on. You just want it to sit there and wait until something yeah. of interest happens. It wakes up, it broadcasts to the world and says, hey, this happened and we're good. Um, in, in my particular uh, setup, it killed that bridge. It was, it was bad. <laughs> So what, what do your networks look like? Do you have IoT segments, like a unique layer two domain VLAN that you've contained your entire IoT network or certain parts of the IoT network together? Do you just have everything kind of glommed on to a, a big fat VLAN one? Um, I've got, uh, well, technically I've got three or four different networks, but I've got one, which is my Apple HomeKit stuff, um, because I choose to have faith an Apple security model, which is better than a lot of the other vendors out there. That was one of the reasons I got into HomeKit originally. I've got my um, your dirty go away VLAN, which is all the other stuff goes in there. And I actually include Amazon and Google and the Facebook. I actually have a Facebook portal and I'm okay with that. Um, that's sitting in my environment, but it's not allowed to talk to anything else. It doesn't have access to the VLAN um, completely restricted from a layer three perspective, VLAN segmented off, it can go out to the internet and that's all it can, it's allowed to do. I have another VLAN, which are another VLAN and SSID combination, which I use specifically for pulling out the MAC address of new devices, because a lot of the, um, a, a lot of the IOT devices are really just expressive ESP 32 or 8266 boards in the background. And when they launch themselves up onto your network, they go, Hey, I'm an expressive board. Here's my Mac and, I, and you're like, you have no idea what this is. Is, is, it, is it a smart yeah. flower pot? Is it, <laughs> is it a light? Is like, you have zero clue. So I've, yeah. I've set up this process as I onboard devices so that I know when I have the only singular device that's going to exist, it's like a staging ground. So I can look at it in my, and I, I am using Ubiquity um, so that I can rename it and give it a friendly name in Ubiquity. So when I pull it onto the proper network that it's going to live on, I can then identify it and know when something's going funny. Christian, you're nodding your head. Is a pretty similar thing, huh? Pretty, pretty similar thing. And uh, actually, especially this uh, staging area was a thing that I had learned because my neighbor also started with the Shelly devices. And with these devices, you don't have a ZTP solution. So basically, I created a ZTP solution that would just go out and look for the SSIDs, Shelly dash and some random MAC address, and basically grabs this and integrates it into my network. So you controlled your neighbor's house. Awesome. Yeah, at, at some some evening he came over and said, "Hey, you're doing a lot with the Shelly stuff. My sensor's behaving odd. As soon as it I power it up, uh, I can't see it anymore." And I was like, "Wait a second. Um, <laughs> yeah, now I have a staging part where I basically decide: Is it allowed to enter into my network?" At this point in the podcast, <laughs> we need that that meme of Spider-Man pointing at each other. What are the chances? Yeah, but segmenting is still important from a security perspective. You'd both agree with that. Yeah, basically these these IoT yeah. sensors are very chatty. Um, some of them already have a cloud built in. Some of them do not. But they at some point they all try to 
maybe even do things that you don't want, like automatic updates, for example. Um, everything in my network is isolated, so I can control when there's a new update. I have, let's say, maybe the living room gets updated first, then I check, do the sensor still react the way I want it, and then all the other rooms get the firmware update. And if you would simply allow them to talk to everything, uh, that could be a huge security risk because usually these devices are very cheap and not all the vendors provide updates. And yeah, so you need to separate them at, as much as possible, at least in my opinion. But in the security risk, though, is the like the concern I've always thought about with IoT devices is th this is an insecure device. Someone is it's going to reach out to the Internet it's, and what it's going to bring in code I don't want, or um, it's going to become part of a, a command and control network and could be used as a jumping off point to launch an attack against my my home network. Not that I got, you know, state secrets here to be protecting, but, you know, you know, I don't want some rogue device doing I don't know what on my network. It, that is still a realistic concern. I, I have, because I was hopeful for a minute there because both you were talking about, oh, there's there's SSL I might have to decrypt now and there's actually, you know, OAuth schemes for some of these devices. I thought maybe this world was getting a little bit better, but neither of you seem to have a lot of confidence. Well, but SSL just means it's hidden. It doesn't mean that there's good yeah. stuff inside the hidden part. Yeah. Yeah. yeah basically, right. it's, it, it is getting better because more folks demand security, but we're still not at a point where I would consider IoT devices as secure. Well, I think more folks demand security until the price comes into effect, in which case yeah. then they'll go to uh, Banggood and AliExpress and, and they'll order, yeah. yes, I can buy the $50 version of the Philips Hue bulb, or I can buy the $4 version. And yeah. like, is it the gift that keeps on giving? Like, I, who knows? Who knows what's actually in there? Um, I have seen... Uh, devices on some of the the sites because I do order uh, some equipment. You can get just some of the plant sensors I'm working on right now is mm -hmm. fifty sixty dollars to buy them here on Amazon. I can buy them for like fifteen dollars ordering from from China. Yes, it's not yeah. next day delivery. It takes six weeks to get here, but you know. So it, it's yeah. one of those like what else is going to be in those devices? And that's that I think is the bigger um, the consumer conundrum is. Yeah. I want it all and I want it at a price that I want to pay for it. And the market's not there yet because the, the, the ability of a vendor to provide all of those things to be able to go through and, and find like the, there, what was it? Um, but a year and a half ago, there was uh, a exploit that was revealed because somebody once upon a time, and this is again, everything, everything we talk about can be reduced to an XKCD, you know, uh, <laughs> comic, right. And it's that one where this whole thing is built by some guy you know, it's some dependency way down in the bottom. And there was a, um, an issue found with that dependency. And as it turned out, that had been deployed in like all of these different as a core component in the stack of whether it was Silicon Labs or, or Expressive or whoever, whatever chip vendor provided as part of their stack. So now it's like the, the, um, the house of cards just comes crashing down around you. And especially the cheaper ones will never get that update. That's the problem. They already got your money and they don't have enough money yeah. to, to yeah. finance the support. Yeah. Like, yeah. And, and that's why you didn't pay very much money. Yeah. Like you pay a lot for Philips Hue. Like there's no question. It's yeah. they're they're ridiculously expensive, but um, their support model is really, really, really good. Yeah. Their devices yeah. last a long time. Yeah. It's the same for the Shelly devices. Usually one of the device costs like 15 to $16. Um, 
I have built them for two dollars, but then I'm basically on my own. So hmm. for these extra dollars, you're getting the support, the updates, and you know this has been tested. Reassuringly expensive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Chris, I think you mentioned that you will on some of your segments you will allow certain devices to talk to the internet, and that's it. What do they need to talk to the internet just for updates, or is it part of their functioning? They need to talk to the cloud. Um, no, they, they, they do need to talk to the cloud. So anything, the Amazon, the Echoes, um, all the Google stuff, uh, the vast majority of those, there is, there is some of those devices that can be a Zigbee or a thread hub bridge as well. You can connect devices directly to, but most of them, if you want to control your Philips Hue lights with your Amazon, you're actually doing an Amazon call and you say, Hey lady, go, you know, turn my lights green. Um, the actual path will be that she will open up a call, take your voice, send it out to the Amazon cloud, do text to speech or uh, speech to text, mm -hmm. let me get that order right, translate that to figure out what it is that you're actually doing. You have invoked the Philips Hue skill, then you will have a cloud to cloud communication where the, the Amazon cloud will talk to the Philips Hue cloud and the Philips Hue cloud will now send back through its control channel to your bridge a message that will then tell your lights to go turn green. So it is this big, long, all the way out to the internet, cloud to cloud, all the way back in. And then, you know, for, for her to say, yes, it's been done successfully, you have to reverse that whole path mm -hmm. where once the light has returned, that status changed has been done properly. It's got to communicate back to the hub, which then updates the Philips Hue cloud, which updates the Amazon <laughs> cloud, which then comes back to her and she goes, your wish is my command. <laughs> right, so, so that's like when we talk local control versus cloud control, that's really what we're talking about. Is there a such thing as home automation that's all local? Um, again, we're, we're into definitions here. Apple HomeKit is all local, unless you want voice control. If voice control is included in your definition, then not really, because something almost in, in all cases I've seen so far, we'll put it that way, um, you are having to uh, packetize your voice, send it out to the cloud, have the cloud doing that speech recognition to translate mm -hmm. that into what your intent actually was and then respond with it. So even in the case of HomeKit or Home Assistant, um, you're, you're essentially still going out to the cloud for something, right? Yeah. You can get, I would argue, 80, 90% of the way to full local control. But even in the case like it, all my automations, and this is again, another good reason of why I don't like voice, is all my automations and in the same way that Christian set up, everything senses and, and works locally. Yeah. It doesn't matter if my internet dies because everything will still keep doing the way it's supposed to. <laughs> Whereas if I needed to say, hey, turn on the lights, now that doesn't work because there's no internet access. Yeah. Well, is that the case with you, Christian? If the internet is down at your yeah. house, can you turn the lights on? Yeah, my, my goal was that I don't have a dependency on the internet. So I wanted to have this as much local as possible. But yeah, voice voice is nothing here because for voice, you need cloud access. Um, the I.O. broker can now also connect to the internet because I'm doing some stuff like air quality, um, stuff like that. I'm pulling that from the internet, but that's just the broker talking, not the devices directly talking to the internet. Um, but yeah, everything would still work. And I had that a couple of times because this was uh, yeah, a new part of town um, and the power and the internet went out a couple of times. And uh, if the internet went out, everything was still working. So if the, assuming the internet is up and everything's normal, do you have remote connectivity to your house? 
Um, that is, you're you're away at the coffee shop and you fire up your laptop. Can you get to the controls in the house? Yeah, I have a VPN. So, I don't okay. use any cloud for that, so I have a VPN coming in. Yeah. So there's no magical. Uh, it reaches out to the cloud. You hit the cloud app, and you no, know as, as so no. many different things are. Yeah. No. Uh, Chris, same same question to you. Yeah, I've got them all. So <laughs> I I run um, HomeKit, which gives me remote access through iCloud. Yeah. I've got my Amazon setup, which obviously I can just log into my Amazon app and I'm good to go. I've got my Google setup, which I'm using mostly. I don't really do much in Google other than using it as a Chromecast target, but I've got those around the, the, the house, so I could access and control those. And on the Home Assistant side, um, they have something called Nabucasa, which is their, uh, and, and it's like $5 a month, which gives you still all your own data, but it gives you that remote access. And essentially, it's just a remote um, almost reverse shell kind of reverse web proxy into your local system. Like that's really all it is. It's nothing, nothing too amazing. Yeah. So yeah, I have access and, and I could do the VPN, but honestly I'm getting lazy and I don't feel like configuring VPNs anymore in my house. <laughs> Chris, what do you monitor or do you monitor? Do you have graphs and things? I do. The, the one actually that, and this, you know, I was, uh, this is, uh, you know, prepare for the rant. This is why it reminds me of, of days of yore, um, way back when grumpy old man warning, triggering, yeah, trigger warning. Uh, I have been monitoring plants. That's the project I'm currently working on is to get my plants monitored. Uh, so I'm using some, um, Xiaomi Mi Flora sensors, which are all Bluetooth based. And to get those to work, um, I had a couple of options. I could do passive Bluetooth scanning. And my goal on that is to different plants has, have different wants and needs, right? If I have my, the, um, the overall, um, the, the um, high and low watermark for humidity or fertilization or temperature or light for different plants, these, these have different requirements, right? So peace lilies versus um, spider plants versus like all these different things. And I want to be able to give my plants the best possible. Well, quite frankly, I want to be able to play with something geeky and nerdy, like let's be real, but I want my plants to be a, oh, I mean, to have. You, you've got my attention. Like, I've got succulents that I that I'm so poor at knowing when to water the stupid things, even though they should be the easiest plants in the world to take care of. I've still managed to kill off some succulents. So I'm I, keep talking, man. I'm interested. So I started with Home Assistant, which does have some built in, but they have this new thing called ESPP Home or ESP Home, which allows your ESP32 boards to be able to passively scan the Bluetooth, and then you can graph it over time. And then there's a flower card, so it will. Uh, It'll show me like red when it's the humidity's out or all these good stuff and I can graph it. All that is good. Except certain versions of the ESP32 don't have passive BLE. They only have BL, uh, Bluetooth. And so I spent like almost two weeks trying to figure this thing out. And then somebody, somebody on the internet, which, you know, what's great is there are a thriving communities of smart oh, yeah. enthusiasts who are, are willing and to, to help. And oh, it's yeah. all like it's it's a blind man with a patch over the eye leading each other is what it feels like sometimes. Um, so he's like, well, try this ESP, this ESP cam board, uh, put on the antenna because I'm having issues with just connecting even to my Wi-Fi. And I'm going through all this stuff. And then I find out that the BLE scanner on iOS won't show you the MAC address. So I need to use the BLE scanner on a um, Amazon Fire tablet with the Google Play so I can get the right app. And as I go through this, I've got this like package of like 21 sensors and see if this feels familiar. Eight of them have the same Mac address. 
<laughs> Perfect. The exact yep. same MAC address. So I'm fighting yep. this battle and I am reminded of like late 90s, early 2000s when my network is going bonkers and I'm seeing MAC addresses in multiple places on the network, which they can't physically be there. There was no Wi-Fi. How is that even possible? And this, you know, the days, I'm sure you remember this, of um, vendors recycling older MAC addresses within their NIC cards. And you couldn't, you couldn't write over top of them. So it was the burned in physical address. And mm -hmm. so I literally probably have spent um, measured in man full 24 hour days, multiple days over the last six weeks just to get this thing up and running. There was there was also a problem that Shelley had a couple of years ago. They started with just the last bit of the MAC address because they never imagined having so many sensors up and running. And all of a sudden, customers called in and said, when we're using the cloud app, it already tells me someone else has already claimed that device. So they had to write a patch to extend the MAC address. And it was it was a mess. <laughs> yeah. Well, how do you extend a MAC address? Like that's... Even... Well, they, they, they have some unique identifiers that they nowadays use to put it in front of the devices so they know exactly, okay, this is oh, a different like device. A ID. Yeah, yeah. But that was, that was just funny to see that they never expected so many sensors to go out and then didn't even realize that so many sensors went out. <laughs> so, so yeah, I've got flowers. I've got, I'm a big air quality buff um, and temperature. So I wish I had a new house. I don't. I have a, a 19... Built in probably the 1960s, um, late 1960s, uh, and in Canada we have um, temperature swings widely. So mm -hmm. in that graphing period, some of the things you have to take into account is the humidity. What I have to do from a humidity perspective, like I can't make a simple if the humidity is 45% go up or down. I actually have to take into account the time of the year because if humidity is 45 and it's in the middle of winter middle of winter causes my HVAC system to go off, which causes my air to be um, dehumidified. And I've seen without humidifiers in this time of year, I've seen my, my in-house humidity go to like 15, 16%. Mm. Like it's bordering on your skin is peeling off and yeah. you can, you can hear the wood creaking in the walls. Yeah. Um, so you need to raise the humidity. Whereas if the humidity is 45 at a different time of year, in say the summer or late, late August timeframe, um, I'm gonna have to have a complete different set of actions. So I have to take into account that long scale as well. You know, I, I could probably write code to say, look at look back over the last five hours of data and look at what it's doing and take into account the HVAC. But if I if I simply take in, you know, as a more elegant solution, if I take in the month of the year, I can probably make a more intelligent decision and simplify my entire project. Right, so there's there's this stuff that you learn over time. Um, you know, I've got obviously all the power sensing stuff, which is uh, phenomenal and amazing. And I've like I can tell you right now, I'm at two thousand nine hundred and ninety watts. Like I just have to look up, and the data's right there. I can tell you that my kitchen fridge is currently using one hundred and thirty three watts of data. Like hmm. all of that is just at the available at my fingertips. Um, and what, are you, what are you viewing it through? Is it Grafana um, for you or something else? No, I'm using Sense. I, I went full. Um, I I will go into Grafana eventually, but I let I let things like everything else in the pandemic. Some of the chores I let things get a little out of control, and my uh, like some networks of the world, it's my smart home is has organically grown, shall we say? <laughs> so right. I I do have to take some time to uh, go back and fix things, but I can I can go through and I bought a uh, commodity off the shelf full pa package that has all the ML in it that will identify all these different devices. 
Um, it's actually out of the Boston area, so it's close close to you, oh. um, which is good stuff. And they also integrate into Home Assistant. Mm-hmm. So I can pull all of that data in directly from my sensors. And so it's it's a bit of a hierarchy of, of um, within that, the Philips Hue will report their energy sensing and will report that back to Sense. My Casa uh, will report all of their energy sensing back into Sense. And then I have my Sense, which is now kind of consolidated all that data in a singular format. And then I pull that into my home assistant. It's at that point where there is so much involved in the ecosystem. In the Turtles ecosystem. all the way down. Well, it, it's a little overwhelming to, to like think, oh, I want to do this. I don't even know where to get started. So, so point me in the right direction. Uh, Christian, if I wanted to get going with all of this insanity, um, like should I jump into IO Broker? Should I, how do I get started with getting more, getting beyond the consumer level that I'm at now of IoT and getting more serious about it? Well, it, it depends on what you want to achieve. Um, like I said, there are there's not only the I.O. broker, that was the one that I personally found interesting because it brought a lot of the default sensors and plugins that I use. Um, but again, it can be Home Assistant. Simply start looking around for these orchestrators um, and then look, okay, where are the devices supported for the most part? And then just yeah, start testing them. I mean, so so the way I should go about it is look at something that supports what I've already got um, in in my house. Would be the best way to go. That would be yeah. the easiest easiest thing to start because uh, unless you're a programmer and you already know how to program all these different sensors, if there's no package available, um, it can get quite hard if it's not supported at all. So I would start by looking at the solutions and looking what type of vendors I'm using, and then simply yeah check if this is still, or if it's yet supported, most of it will be. Um, but if you have some sort of unknown vendors or you're doing your own sensors, you definitely need to have some yeah, programming experience or at least look at similar sensors and start adapting to that. I would highly recommend networking people look at Home Assistant as a first step. And the reason for that, see if any of this sounds familiar, it's core written in Python. Mm-hmm. The templates are all written in Jinja. Hmm. Like, a lot of the things that those skills that we've built over the last you know, 10 years, looking at Ansible and playbooks and all that good stuff, um, it's, all of those are applicable, right? So there are, I, when I first started getting to this, this side of the fence, uh, I was looking at Homebridge and I was looking at Home Assistant and Homebridge is all uh, Node.js. I don't have Node.js skills, so I wanted to have something. Mm-hmm. I may not be going in full concurrency models and, and using all the cool stuff that home assistant has done in the last couple of years, but I at least can go in if I need to underneath the covers. Like I'm not a mechanic, but I can change my tire, right? I can understand something that's going wrong. Um, I would say the most important thing, and this is, this is also just my personality type coming through is what is your goal? What is it that you want to look at and learn and, and realize that you're probably going to be doing some learning some real learning and um, you know, the flower sensing project, I don't do hardware hacking. I've never played around with the SP32 boards before this. I know that they exist. I just never had a reason to do it. And I have spent the last, um, my, my first order came in somewhere around December and we're recording on, on Valentine's day. So love you guys. Um, <laughs> so now we're, we're like five, six weeks trying to get sensor data into my home assistant, like, 
five or six weeks of, of time banging my head against this stupid project that if I didn't really want to do this, I would have abandoned it. And there was a couple of times, quite honestly, that I've, I have looked at this project before in my head over the last three or four years and abandoned it because it was just outside of my, outside of the skills I had or time I had to dedicate at that point in time. Yeah. Now, Home Assistant, I just uh, Googled that up real quick. Nabucasa is uh, who is making that, and it runs on what? There is, it's in the Mac App Store. Um, where else can I run it? So Home Assistant in the Mac App Store is the Home Assistant app to access your Home Assistant, right? Uh, Nabucasa, I think, is is the nonprofit or something like that that they use to fund um, because the guys who, who do Home Assistant, it was pure open source at one point mm-hmm. in time. And so now they have created Nabucasa as the cloud component and it is a way also to hire a couple of people. So now it's it's funded open source, right? But it really is a community-driven open source project. Um, it will run on... Um, full Docker containers. So you have the full Docker install. There's a Home Assistant uh, OS that you can flash onto a just a, an SD card. Um, I've got it running on an Intel NUC, right? So any, any um, X, x86 or ARM architecture, like it'll run on both. And it's essentially as easy at this point as turn it on and just start clicking around the interface. Oh, I've got an right, older can, Mac Mini sitting around. I, I wonder if I could flash it to flash the Mac Mini to run this. That would be interesting. It's it's, I, it's, it's, got, it's running vSphere right now, and I haven't done anything with it. It's been powered down for a while because I just I didn't need it. That feels like it might be a good uh, good candidate. Hmm. Come hmm. to the dark side. <laughs> we have cookies. <laughs> and again, you will you will start with the sensors that you now have, and soon this army will grow. I can tell you because it's. <laughs> It's so addictive. Once you start, you never stop. <laughs> well, and and it's it's beyond that. You, you start. It it changes the way that you think about these yeah. things, yeah. right? Because what is a sensor? It's it's measuring anything. Um, so there's people, and one of the things that I'm looking at doing is to um, take into account my um, kids' activities and chores, and then I can log in, and I could either like I could instrument around the house with um, with NFC stickers. So you can just tap onto things, you know, hey, you did your chore, great. Tap the thing, mm-hmm. interface comes up, Josh did his chores, away you go, you know, add $5 to allowance, like any of those kinds of things. Like there's mm-hmm. all of these other opportunities that you have, you know, chore was not done. I could write- kill the uh, Wi-Fi. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 yes, I could kill the Wi-Fi based yeah. on, on X, right? I could, I could actually pull in um, a data source as far as their report cards. Or I could go in and, and take an external calendar, scrape through that using something like Beautiful Soup, you know, use Python mm-hmm. to ingest that, format the data proper to clean it up. Like it is, it's this amazing, like it just, the combination of the platforms they've given us with the data sources that we have, with the machine learning that we have and the ability to run like Boolean sensors of, um, I'm going to guess that this is, you know, we're, we're 70% sure that this is the case. If you're 70% sure, okay, kill, kill the Wi-Fi. Like all of this stuff is is amazing, and then from there, I've seen projects where um, it's they will take it in and say, okay, I'm going to go into my Sonos, and I'm going to grab. Um, there's one I saw the other day, which is amazing. They, he printed off little business cards, like NFC cards, which had album cover art on it, and then he tapped that against an NFC reader, and then the, the it's it's actually it's bringing the tactile experience back to music, mm-hmm. and then that would start to trigger a Spotify playlist with that specific song. 
And then he had a mural um, full uh, smart picture frame on his wall that would then display the album artwork for a five minute or a five second period over whatever it was. So it's like you can go up and you can grab your like whatever album cover that you loved back in the day that was just, you know, that iconic picture art that that some of us like pre MP3, pre cloud music era, like that was an experience. And now you can like flip through your cards, grab it, tap album artwork comes up like all of that stuff is is within reach now yeah i'm not saying it's you don't have to stretch a bit but it's within reach and it's not just the internal things that you can use but you can also use external informations like when when do i have to to put the trash out on the street like the city is sending me all these dates where i have to put the yeah trash can front of the street and now i get a signal message i'm just pulling this calendar and it reminds me the evening before okay remember Treasure's coming tomorrow. Please put out the respective trash can. Um, well, and weather makes... forecast. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> when front door opens, contact sensor opens. If weather forecast equals rain, um, Chromecast <laughs> to Google, hey, you might want to take your umbrella today. Yeah. Like, oh, I, I'm very keen on the weather uh, because I, I do a lot of outdoor stuff, hiking and so on, and I need weather windows to know temperature is going to be good. It's going to be nice and sunny and maybe something like, and so block my calendar here to here. So no one books me for a zoom meeting in the middle of this nice weather window to go outside and get some exercise. Things like that would be cool. Yeah. 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 Uh, Christian, starting with you, where, where can people find you in the internet? Do you blog? Are you on Twitter? That kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, I have a blog, uh, jncie.eu, but I'm mostly blogging about the Juniper stuff, not the home automation stuff. Um, yeah, and they can find me on Twitter, CHS Juniper. You, you blogging about the Juniper stuff in English, German, or both? English, English. Um, English. Currently, everything is in English. I'm planning to do one of the uh, YouTube channels also in German for the local audience, but so far, everything is in English. So jncie.eu, right? Excellent. Thank you, Christian, for joining us today with your insane home automation network with all the IoT. This has been mind expanding for me. Uh, Chris Young, same question to you. Um, So I have two different Twitter personalities. I have at Netman Chris on Twitter, which I've been there for years, Mm -hmm. um, and a blog that goes along with that, which I'm actually probably going to dust off some of the networking Bluetooth stuff that I've been digging into. um, And might actually pay that one? Controlissues.net with a K, yeah. Um, and then I've got on the other side of the home assistant or the the home smart home stuff. I've got HomeKit Geek, which is the Twitter handle, as well as HomeKitGeek.com is the uh, the web page. So I've got both of those, and yeah, I'm uh, both have have need a little TLC. I've been doing what many of us have done in the pandemic, and I've taken a a breath for a couple of months, but I am starting to be um, kind of looked inward and and started to to find the passion again to do some of this stuff and dig in and bang my head against it. So I'm hoping to come out of the lull soon and start producing some content again. Um, yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. I went through a period of really not wanting to do very much and I'm starting to feel it again where I'm wanting to get into some things and dig into some interesting projects and, and do some things. I've just been spending more time with Python. Uh, for me, it's been dealing with the misery that is the world of podcasting statistics. They're all horrendous. And so if you're trying to get a sense of, you know, who's following your blog and consuming your podcast and all of that stuff. It's a mix and match, terrifyingly difficult world uh, with no consistency. And there's add-on services and stuff that you can buy, SaaS that'll supposedly help you with all that. No, they all suck. They're all terrible. 
Uh, and so I've been getting into what data can I scrape out there or what, who's got an API for me and then pull in stats that are meaningful to, uh, you know, to my particular world. And I've begun to write more and more of that. And it's this deep, dark hole you go down into. This service requires OAuth too. And so you need to, using your refresh token, get a new access token every time you want to quit. And it's, it's a rabbit hole you just drop down and, but it's been interesting. And my brain is finally re-engaged. Whereas some, I don't know what it was, but during the pandemic, I was just like, I don't want to do any of this stuff. I just not, not feeling it. And I'm starting to feel it again. Uh, and it, and it feels good. Anyway, if you're out there listening, thanks for joining us. I am Ethan Banks at EC Banks on Twitter, ethancbanks.com. And of course, this has been Heavy Networking, part of the Packet Pushers podcast network. You can find shows like this, and we have several other fine, free, technical podcasts for you nerdy types and, and a community blog. That's all at PacketPushers.net. If you want to follow what's going on with Packet Pushers, we're on Twitter at Packet Pushers, and we're on LinkedIn, too. Uh, we're there. And uh, hey, let's keep it short and simple today. Last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.